episode 54 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than nine years' experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to Abdi Latif Dahir, the East Africa correspondent for The New York Times based in Nairobi, Kenya. He tells us about how his interest in journalism began when his parents moved back to Somalia when he was eight years old. He witnessed a lot of horrible things living in war-torn Mogadishu and started to write in journals as a way to process it. His personal experience living through the fighting in Somalia helps him to write some of the most nuanced stories about conflict today, putting them in human terms. He tells us how he went from Mogadishu to being a correspondent for the New York Times, working at Quartz and other publications along the way. He takes us all over Africa, including talking about reporting from Rwanda on the arrest and trial of Paul Rusesabagina, the man famously portrayed in the movie Hotel Rwanda. For new listeners who aren't familiar with our format, for about the first 56 minutes we discuss Abdi's biography, the story of his career from birth to present. Then, for about 20 minutes, he takes us behind the scenes and talks about a couple of stories he's done in his career. Then the last 15 minutes or so are the lightning round, which I reserve for fun, faster-paced questions. This is again one of my longer episodes, but honestly, Abdi just tells so many compelling stories, and I'm a sucker for that. I couldn't bear to cut it down anymore. It's possible I'll put out bonus content with some additional things I had to cut, as I've done with a handful of episodes in the past. I haven't decided yet, but keep an eye on your podcast feed just in case. So now, without further ado... Here's my interview with Abdi Latif Dahir of the New York Times in Kenya. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Abdi. Thanks for having me, Jake. So just to get warm up a little bit, if you could start by setting the scene for us and tell us a little bit about the space you're in and also where you are geographically and a little bit about what the past week of work has been like for you. Great. Uh, so I am in Nairobi, Kenya. I am in my apartment, basically sitting in the room where I work from most of the days, particularly with the pandemic. And, you know, there's been a lot of working from home type of situation. So I'm sitting pretty much in here right now. It's been very cloudy and chilly in Nairobi so it's one of those mornings yet again the sun sort of like keeps you know peeping in and out but uh it's more or less like been very cloudy and gloomy over the past uh, few weeks in terms of work um the past week uh, I mean has been more or less like focused on Ethiopia uh and following the turnaround of events that have taken place uh, there, particularly as it relates to the war in Tigray, which is the, um, the northernmost region in Ethiopia. So basically have been focused on that for the better part of the week, but also more or less like also following concerns around the coronavirus pandemic. There's uh, the continent, the African continent, or close to two dozen countries actually are now facing a third wave and there's a lot of concerns in terms of like infections in terms of deaths in terms of like you know the fact that the continent still continues to lag in vaccination rates so I've also been following that and and writing a little bit about it and particularly as it pertains to where the next batch of vaccines are going to come from 
how initiatives like COVAX are looking into uh, delivering more vaccines to the continent, what the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization Africa program are also thinking about. So more or less like also following that story because it's something that we are sort of like living with on a day-to-day basis. And particularly also the way in which the Delta variant, which is uh, experts say is much more transmissible and contagious, how it's driving this third wave that the continent is currently going through. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had just come back from Western Kenya, particularly in this county called Kisumu County, uh, where Kenya had first discovered the first few cases of actually the Delta variant. And uh, in the weeks since, uh, there's been a lot more infections there. The county started reporting uh, a lot more cases, you know, than for instance, like places like the capital Nairobi, which has uh, more or less like uh, almost three times the, the size of the population, uh, you know, and there were like major um, national holiday events that had taken place there. So a lot of politicians descended there against, you know, the advice of experts. So, and basically we did see in the span of like two to three weeks after that the major event took place, you know, uh, cases rising, infections rising, hospitals getting overwhelmed, doctors getting very concerned about the fact that they didn't have enough equipment or enough protective equipment themselves to actually, you know, protect themselves as they attend to patients. So, uh, yeah, it's been a very busy few weeks and also particularly with the Horn of Africa, you know, they're... This is a very interesting uh, region when it comes to the news, particularly because it's like there are tons of like stuff happening, whether it's political, economic, social, all at the same time. And it's sometimes uh, a little bit um, problematic in terms of like, you know, keeping up with the pace of the news in terms of like what should we cover and how should we cover it? And should we do it instantaneously or should we wait a, a day or two and bring a much more nuanced in-depth coverage to the some of these stories so yeah that's in a nutshell what's been what's been happening wow yeah sounds like a lot going on in terms of just we'll talk a bit more about your position at the new york times a little bit later but just to get a sense of the geographic area you cover how many countries are we talking in in east africa that you have to cover it's um, about a dozen countries so anything from Djibouti, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan, Somalia, Kenya, and then of course the traditional East African states, the states that would make up the, the East African community. So that's Burundi, Tanzania, you know, Rwanda is in there, and uh, up until sometimes like, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So those are the countries that, that, that fall within my purview here. Gotcha. Okay, great. Well, then we'll push on to the first section of the interview, which is about your biography. And we like to give people a sense of how you got to where you are today. So if you could just start way back at the beginning and tell us a little bit about where you were from, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything early on planted the seeds of interest in being a journalist. Uh, So I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, spent up to nine years living in Nairobi. And then my family, I'm ethnic Somali, so my family moved to Mogadishu when I was nine years old. 
pretty much like I think like literally four days before my ninth birthday. And um, we moved to Mogadishu with my mom. My dad was still working in Nairobi, so he would sort of like travel back and forth, but we were mostly like with my mother. And um, I like to think that my interest in journalism dates back to those days because instantly, you know, you moved from like a, a peaceful city. We had like normal lives. We had like friends. We had like, you know, living sort of like very simple, easy lives. And then you move to like a, a capital that is completely war-torn and and facing a, a country that's pretty much like facing humanitarian disasters. And I remember like from early on, like we would go to school every morning and I would come back from school just with like a lot of questions. Most of those questions, of course, were driven by the fact that you know, growing up in Kenya, we were going to school and like learning in English and Kiswahili. But then when we moved to Mogadishu, we were, you know, most of the people in school would speak Somali. We did speak Somali, my siblings and I, and but our Somali was not that great at the time. And then we were schooling in Arabic, which we basically had to start learning when we landed in Mogadishu. So it was always like, as a kid, you're coming back from home, you don't understand half of the things that you're being told in school. You don't know half of the things that your friends were talking about. And then you're sort of like encountering uh, sometimes a hostile environment because I remember we, we were going to this primary school that was on another side of town. And every morning we would have to cross what used to be called the famous green line. So in this green line, like, you know, you would have like, all these militias, people with with guns sitting on one side, belonging to one tribe, and then you're crossing to the other side, and, you know, you're meeting these other militants with, like, guns. And, and it was, like, interesting because they would encourage us, like, every morning when they'd be like, yeah, you know, you're the future of the country, like, you know, as we were crossing this line, and it would just be sort of, like, ironically, like, just look at them and more or less, like, pretending that they weren't talking to us and like, because you're just like, I don't want to draw attention to myself. You just want to be as small as I can be. So so I, I sort of, like, would come back home and ask my mother, like, a lot of questions. Like, I just had a lot of questions about why is this country at war? Like, why are we here? Like, you know, and I remember my mother, one of the afternoons when we came back from school, had bought for me a bunch of like very colorful notebooks and she is like I want you when you come from school every day instead of like asking all these questions I want you to write down some of these questions and also some of the things that you have seen and that journal that process of journaling my emotions my questions into those notebooks are the first most important things that I think about when I think about my journalism career because I'm like in a way it it made me start thinking about this process of writing. It was almost like a process of also healing in that I I would think about all the crazy things that we had seen that day or or sometimes like we would be going to school and like we would see dead people like, you know, whose bodies were by the side of the street either stabbed or shot. Mm-hmm. We would encounter like a lot of just day-to-day violence uh, in that, you know, you would see people fighting. There were points in time when, for instance... The neighborhood near the school that we were going to had, uh, there was a cholera outbreak there. So we would be passing through all these sort of like neighborhoods where people were literally being brought outside their homes and, you know, they were reading the Quran on them, you know, sort of like in anticipation of their deaths. And they would 
sometimes like we were walking by the side of the road and they'll be like, you know, pray for this person. Like, you know, um, your young people pray for this old person, like so that he gets better. And like, you know, we would go and like, you know, stand right next to these people and like pray for them and whatnot. So, you know, and then of course, like also the other, the, the, the beauty of like, I would record also in those journals, the beauty of friendships and like the people that I was meeting in school and the kind teachers and like the quirky things that we would see that was different. And then during holidays, whenever we would come back to Nairobi, sometimes would start telling our cousins uh, and our family members about all these things. And I'll be like, yeah, you know, like this is what I saw that day and this is what I saw. And that sort of like process of retelling the stories was something that I really gravitated towards to and something that I really wanted to be at the forefront of. And um, so, yeah, it, it was like... I think about those days and then another key thing, particularly when I think about those days in Mogadishu, is that right around the time when we went there is when Al Jazeera Arabic had launched. So we had a tutor at home who was like teaching us Arabic and like one of the th- interesting things was like, you know, he would make us watch all these movies and TVs and shows so that we were able to sort of like listen in and like, you know, perfect our listening skills and then our spoken Arabic and our written Arabic. And Al Jazeera was pivotal in that because I here was this sort of like news channel that was bringing us news from all over the world and particularly from the Middle East. And I just sort of like gravitated towards it and really just almost always wanted to listen to it, particularly because it was also speaking in what they call the Arab, Arabic or like, you know, the, the sort of like um, the mainstream traditional sort of like written Arabic. And yeah, and, and it was sort of like, from there on was just sort of like, yeah, maybe I, I want to become like a, a TV anchor. <laughs> That's how it all started. And I was like, you know, <laughs> maybe one day I'll be in front of the TV. And in school, like I used to, we used to have like every class would sort of like have a day where they would be doing some sort of like a program in front of everybody else in the morning parade that we would attend and I always loved to be the person who was reading the news whenever it came to our class I'd be like you know prepare every night whenever it was our class night because somebody would come in and like read I don't know like a verse from the Quran and another person would like sing and another and I would always be like the person who was like delivering the news so I would put on this voice almost always like trying to pretend that I was an Al Jazeera Arabic but um, yeah and it was you know, I was much more extroverted as a student uh, at the time. But then sort of like I, with time, I sort of like was started gravitating towards books, particularly because our Arabic tutor started introducing me to all these classic. Uh, he introduced me basically to Shakespeare and I read Shakespeare and a lot of like the classic English language, like, you know, the, the Tolstoys and stuff in Arabic in the beginning. And that's when I sort of like started developing the sense of like, maybe I want to write. Maybe I want to also sort of like, I like this, the whole thing about, you know, being able to think through some of the stuff that you were saying instead of like just being on the spot and like, you know, articulating yourself on the spot. And so by the time I graduated from high school in Mogadishu, uh, I had sort of like really become less extroverted. I had become much more drawn to like books and writing I was also writing terrible poetry on the side <laughs> and uh, and then I moved back to Kenya but when, when we graduated from high school so came to Nairobi and I just pretty much like knew honestly by then that 
I had at least four, four or five years before that knew that, you know, I was definitely going to go into journalism. Definitely my parents, because my older siblings had all gone into medicine and engineering and, you know, were just like, oh, of course, like, you're going to be a doctor. I was like, no, but I'm terrible with the sciences. Like, I, I can't, I can't, I, you know, I, I just can't do this. And so... I came back to Nairobi. I enrolled in a mass program doing mass communication. It was interesting because, you know, at the time, like not a lot of like also universities here were accepting like high school certificates from Somalia. They all just thought that, you know, like what what school did you go to? Like are there even schools in Somalia? Like it, it was like a little bit tough getting into a university program. So I enrolled for like a mass communication program, which was great in that it was very highly academic. So it, it sort of like gave me the chance to read a lot of academic texts around media, around journalism, around uh, sort of like the academic side of journalism and more or less like understand the theories of journalism Questions around framing, questions around, you know, how the media works, how institutions come together, like, you know, understanding the history of journalism and public reading even like about the history of the New York Times and, and, and Reuters and how they all came to be and, you know, how the, you know, the media, modern media was shaped by history. So it was great in that sense um, and just made me much more adamant in the sense that I wanted to actually now go into a program that would allow me to do the practical side of things. So eventually... I enrolled at a university in Nairobi, uh, the United States International University. I was actually, hmm. they rejected my application like twice. But uh, the third time I had a cousin who had graduated from the university and she went with me to the admission and we met the admission director and he, she was like, listen, like he graduated top of his high school, you know, in Mogadishu, like he went to this mass communication program, he did well, you know, you guys should just accept him. So they gave me like a partial admission and they were like, okay, we're going to test you for like a semester and we're going to see how good your skills are. And like, if, you know, don't you dare, you know, like if you do not get your 4.0 GPA, like, so I, they did give me a partial enrollment and then I did a semester there. I got all A's and then I did a second semester. I got all A's. It was, then they gave me like a full admission and then more or less like went to study there. I, I did a, a minor in international relations and I did a major in journalism with a specialization in um, print media. Sorry, did this allow you, so you, undergrad, you didn't get much hands-on experience. It sounds like it was more theory. And... Yeah, so, but towards the end, sort of like, of the undergrad is when I honestly just started writing like doing a lot of the practical stuff. So by the time I was a junior, what happened is that the United Press International, some of their representatives sort of like were creating this program where they were working with university students across the world. And so we had a, a UPI representative come down from D.C. and like engage the students. And I remember from the get-go, I was like, you know, I always wanted to like break into international media. So I was like, mm, I know I haven't even done much with like local media, but I was just like, you know, after I remember after that session, like accosting this editor who had come from Washington. And I was like, you know, I want to write, you know, like you guys should just give me a chance. And he immediately introduced me to other editors. And like, I, you know, they would ask me to write stuff, you know, 
whenever they had like a story happening in Kenya or East Africa, they would be like, can you get a quote from somebody or like do something or, you know, so I started like doing a bit of that. And then with local publications, I started writing um, the Nation Media Group, which is like the biggest media outlet, I would like to say in East Africa, had a publication at the time that it was, it was at that time when, you know, people were sort of like testing what was happening with digital media and so they created this platform called Africa Review, where they wanted to bring in all these correspondents from across the continent to start and write for the publication and, and, and more or less like report on these countries where the people are. So I had started writing a blog about Somalia, which an editor, you know, at the Africa Review read and, you know, they reached out and they're like, hey, can you do things about Somalia? And I was like, absolutely. And so while I was still a junior, I would like, sometimes like during semester breaks or like spring break, like actually go to fly to Somalia, do a few stories from Mogadishu, uh, which they really loved. And by the time I was graduating, because I had a bit of the UPI experience and a bit of, you know, the experience with the Africa Review, the Daily Nation newspaper, which was the main publication by the Nation Media Group, offered me a position uh, to become a business and tech reporter. So... You know, that was great because I, I, I graduated in August of 2011 from university and they immediately offered me this position, which was just like fantastic. I, I actually didn't have to look for a job and it was like the biggest newspaper in the country wanted me to work there. So, yeah, so I went in to, into the Nation Media Group and, and it was great. It was a great experience, but I knew two things happened there like in the first two months, which was that the first one was that Kenya invaded Somalia in late 2011 and I was like I knew because I was like I knew so much about this country and I've lived there I had that experience like you know I wanted to like go and embed with the Kenyan troops and report on the country but the paper was just like no 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 you're too young you can't do that and it was a little bit frustrating because there was a lot, a lot of errors that were ending up on the front page of the newspaper, for instance, about just basic things about cities in Somalia or like what was happening there. And I would always like take the morning paper, like I would come into the newsroom at 6 a.m. and like read the paper quickly and just be like, you know, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. And like I would go to the main editor. And so what ha- started happening is that they started calling me into like the main morning meeting and they would be like, what do you think I should do about this? And I was always just like sitting there and saying like, well, you should let me go and like embed with, with the troops so that your reporters are not making some of these mistakes. But they just like wouldn't let me do that. And so, but, but on the side, I just kept writing a lot of stories of business and technology, which was also like interesting because I was like, it was giving me a multidimensional sort of like experience of like life in just not just Nairobi or Kenya, but also in the, in the, in the region. The other thing that happened is that I quickly sensed that given my experience with UPI and given the kind of editing uh, guidance that I was getting there, that I wasn't receiving much of that. Um, so in a way, even my first few months at the Daily Nation, I was just like a little bit restless in that I was like, I don't think I'm getting enough guidance on like the type of stories that I want to do or like getting good editing or good editors to work with me. And I wanted to just go out there. So what happened is that by the end of that year, UPI knew that I still wanted to work with them. And they called me and they were like, hey, listen, we'll 
give you a full-on one-year fellowship. It's going to be allow you to travel the region. We're going to give you a full-time editor who will work with you on your writing, on your process of reporting, on writing for a global audience, on making sure that you know you're able to cover different things. And it was sort of like the greatest thing that happened to me at the time because it was like it was almost like going back to class to study and as somebody who was like really great at editing and a great reporter but also it also gave me the chance to actually be a reporter and, and go out there and report i should also mention that one of the reasons why like upi had, had, had developed a great relationship with them was because towards the end of my graduation is when the south sudan referendum was happening and the um, and they allowed me to cover the referendum from kenya because you had a huge south sudanese community that was living here and that was allowed to vote on the country's independence so i covered that and it was one of the most exhilarating uh, experiences that i had which was just like uh, i'll never forget like you know getting to the this polling station which was actually close to where my university was and um just standing in line and like being like you know this is a huge historic moment and standing amidst like you know everybody from AP and the New York Times and uh, you know the AFP and all these uh, hundreds of journalists like who all wanted to capture who was going to be the first person to vote and just thinking that you know I haven't even graduated university and here I am like witnessing this very important moment that will eventually lead to the birth of the world's youngest country and that's one of the things that you know working with the editors that day I knew that there was something big out there that I I wanted to do and so first forward to like the end of that year I more or less like was like the Daily Nation was like fine we'll allow you to like write like one or two stories a week but we'll also give you the freedom to go pursue this fellowship so again it was like something great that happened for me in that I had a leg in both this big publication and also was being allowed to like go out there and like do this type of storytelling that I, I was interested in. So how does the, the uh, I forget the name, but International American University fit into this? You you do your studies while still working or how did that all fit together? So, no, no, no. I had actually, by the time like I was, you mean like when I was actually still in university and like work, doing work for UPI? Well, you, you had said you had done kind of one degree in mass communications, but then you got into another program. Uh, later that was uh, journalism with a minor in international relations and those are two separate things right so I finished one uh, and then I transitioned to the other one because you know the the university was much better Uh, I mean it it had a full-on journalism program Uh, so it was a it was a bachelor's degree in journalism and while I was doing that, while I was a junior there is when I started doing all these UPI gigs and writing for the Africa Review. And, uh, and then by the time I was a senior, I, was, I covered the South Sudan referendum. And then pretty much I graduated several months after that. So August 29th. The referendum was in January 2011, right? And then I graduated in August 2011. And then I go into the Daily Nation newsroom pretty much several weeks later. And then Kenya invades Somalia in 2011. And, and then all that is happening. And by the end of the year, which is around December, UPI is like, you know, we'll offer you this full fellowship so that you're able to, you can report across the region and we will help you sort of like write for a global audience and make you 
prepare to write for wire journalism so yeah well it was sort of like it, it all came together so quickly and by the time it was like 2012 i was like more or less like writing for the daily nation writing for the business daily which is a business publication that the nation media group has i was writing for the, the one of the few regional papers uh, in kenya called the east african which was like the weekly sort of like regional paper that everybody looked forward to because it had stories from all across Rwanda, Kenya, Tanzania, Somalia, and um, and where most of the experienced reporters were writing at. So I was channeling a lot of what I was learning from UPI into also how I was doing the local journalism here. So by the time, like for instance, I would send my copy to editors here, they would be like, oh, you know, this is really great. But then it was all because I all of these tricks that I was picking out from these editors who are sitting in D.C. who are like telling me how to write or showing me, honestly, how to make stories that could be very, very local and turn them into stories that people sitting anywhere in the world would be interested in writing about. So I remember, for instance, one of the things that I worked on at the time was this highway that the Chinese were funding in Kenya. And... um, it's sort of like, I was like, oh, this is an interesting uh, highway. But it was very local in that it was like one of the ma- first subhighways that Kenya had ever developed. It was sort of like the onset of China's involvement in the country. So there was a lot of, uh, you could say, ambivalence about are the Chinese good for Kenya? Are the Chinese bad for Kenya? Like, what is, you know, where is this relationship even going? And I remember just in passing telling an editor like, oh, yeah, you know, like they're they're building this road and like, thank God, like it used to be like a two-way highway and now it's going to be like eight, nine. And they're just like, what? That is very interesting. You know, like, you know, you could sort of like take something that's very local and turn it into something that is uh, people from all over the world would be interested in and policymakers would be interested in. And you can talk to a few experts and you can talk to a few people and like maybe get on some of the public transportation, um, local transportation, and and ask them, like, ask the drivers, like, how do you feel that now you're cutting traffic by, you know, where it used to take two hours, now you're getting there in, like, 10, 15 minutes. It was great in that sense. It was just sort of, like, now trying to understand also journalism from a thematic perspective and say that, you know, I just don't have to write about politics, that the politics can be infused with economics, can be infused with the social, it can be about cultural and they were very interested in everything. They'll be like, what are people eating these days? And I'll be like, uh, okay. Uh, you know, and then I would pitch stories, right? So it made me a much more observant, um, both as a person and as a journalist. And it's something that, that I continue to s- struggle with in that when you are born in a place and you grew up in a place for a very long time, your eye is not as fresh as somebody who's coming in for the first time, right? So... I'm always looking around and being like, would people be interested in that? You know, like I know about that. Like, or sometimes like I would just like talk to my editors and blabber about something. They'd be like, wow, that's fascinating. You should write about that. I'm like, but everybody here knows about that. But they're like, well, people out there don't know about it. So, so I sort of like had to learn and it's a skill that I continue to try and employ in my reporting, which is that this is interesting. I know a lot about it. I know a lot about this situation, but people out there don't know. And whenever I've sort of like uh, pushed harder to, and, and given myself that challenge, 
it's almost always paid off and that people are always just like, wow, I never knew that existed there. And I was just like, well, this has been our reality for decades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, before yeah. I realized this is a, a long time ago in, in your story at this point, but some listeners might be interested in knowing if you're willing to talk about it. Why did your parents move from Nairobi back to Somalia when it was, you know, in such a a tense situation and dangerous situation? That's a great question, Jake. And it's a a question that I can still struggle with. And it's a question that I've asked my parents so many times and there's always like a different answer to it. I think one of the key reasons, like my mother and my father wanted us to move was because my mother, I think at the time, felt that, you know, I want to move to a place where I think I can imbue the sense of Somaliness that I have in my kids. I want them to sort of like understand what their culture is about. I want them to understand what it means to be Somali so that they're able to speak the language of their grandparents and great-great-grandparents. The thing here is that also every time like people, I tell people about the story, they're always surprised about why you are a Kenyan, but why did you go to Somalia? The thing is that also like Somalis live across all this region, right? Like, so there's Somalis in Ethiopia and in Djibouti and like, you know, Kenya, you know, it's sort of like this sort of like community that has completely been separated by the, you know, the lines in the sand that colonial power forces drew like decades ago. So in that sense, it was like, here you are carrying yourself as a Kenyan, but you go into this environment where everybody, if you're walking down the street, nobody gives a mind because you're just like, oh yeah, he's definitely Somali. But you are still like not even conversant in the language, not even conversant in the culture. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, one of the the reasons why we moved to Somalia. And I also think about this in the context of like my dad. I mean, you know, my, my dad is polygamous. Um, you know, have a, has a big family. I have 21 siblings with 11 boys and 11 girls in my family. Wow. And so... At the time, you know, my dad has never finished primary school and he's been a dogged businessman for for decades and has sort of like gone into different businesses. And at the time, like this is something that I'm also trying to dig out right now because I'm actually working on something about this and like sort of like trying to get it out from him and, and, and make him sit down for like actual recorded interviews. And his finances were not that great at the time. He had lost... A lot of businesses. He uh, went into some losses. He was in in textile and, and at the time, and um, this was also like a way to say, okay, maybe for a few months or maybe a year or two, I can like move the kids to Somalia, where it's cheaper to manage a family, while at the same time, you know, I can sort of like get back up on my feet and then they will be able to come back which we sort of like eventually did right like but it took us eight years to come back gotcha and and one last thing about this also is that at the time my dad's older brother who is an academic and uh, you know has studied like islam and, and sharia law and like you know he's like this lawyer incredible has studied all over the world and like had decided at the time that he was going to move back to Somalia because he's like, listen, this is a country that has gone to war. If 
nobody goes back to rebuild it. Who's, who's going to be there for the Somalis? Who's going to be there for the people in our community? So he decided that he was going to drop everything and decided to move his four kids and wife back to Mogadishu. And he, at the time, established what became one of the first primary schools that was there and established what became one of the first high schools and then basically established the first post-war university, which now has like educated tens of thousands of people across the country. So I think my dad also, like at the time, and my mom felt a bit courageous in moving us there because they were like, yeah, you know, well, they live there, like, you know. And so at least we'll have some sort of like family when we got there and they'll be able to help us around, get us around and we'll have some kins living there. So I thought, I think that's also like one of the things that contributed to to us moving to Mogadishu, yeah. Yeah, that's extremely interesting. And I mean, obviously things turned out fine. You're fine now. So, uh, (laughs) yes. Yeah, does that, uh, just out of curiosity, growing up in that situation, I mean, does that color your views on covering conflict if and when you have to? Uh, We haven't gotten to that part of the story, but I mean, there are these intermittent conflicts around the region. Does that affect how you see for example, what's happening in Ethiopia or what's happening uh, wherever there's conflict? Yes, absolutely, it does. And it's sort of like, uh, I was in Sudan in December to talk to the Ethiopian refugees that had fled to eastern Sudan. And I remember getting to one of the camps and just feeling like I was almost home amongst them. It's, it's a kind of weird feeling to have because I don't speak Amharic, I don't speak Tigrinya. But it was just like, I got there and I was just like, okay. It, it was very much like very natural for me to sort of like approach people and just talk to them and sit down with them. And they would talk to me about how they fled, the shelling, the guns, the, the, the things that they saw along the ways, the atrocities. And it, it more or less like made me much more determined to tell their story. But also it just, situations like that make me think a lot about Mogadishu and the conflict that we went through and and, and what it was like growing up there. So yes, it definitely doesn't cloud my judgment in the way like we need to do objective reporting and like listen to people's stories and, and verify them and be able to like, you know, tell what's true and what's not. But it's definitely there with me because I'm almost always sitting there thinking, yeah, I know what it feels like even if our experiences are radically different, I know what it is like to dodge a bullet or like not go to school because like, you know, these warlords or militants have completely taken over that entire area and like are fighting there or like, you know, just being stuck at school while two different camps are like literally shelling each other or like, you know, just being able to like go back to school and be told, oh, you know, the guy who used to sit behind you in class, yeah, he got shot yesterday and he's dead. And it's like, you know, trying to deal with that trauma is always something that it definitely stays with you. And and it's hard to sort of like shake it off sometimes, but it's like also like, it makes me much more determined in my journalism to try and tell those stories and tell people's stories. And not just like when an attack happens somewhere or like an explosion happened somewhere it's almost always like can we tell the stories of these people who are actually impacted and even like sometimes when I go back to like Mogadishu like last year there was an attack in late uh, December 2019 that took place and 
up to 80 people were killed and it was one of the worst attacks in years and I went there and sat down with like some of the families more than a dozen of the people who were killed were very young Somalis who were actually going to university they were in two different buses and they were nurses and doctors and they were all studying to become medicine some of them were about to graduate some of them were at the top in their classes and I was sitting there like talking to their professors talking to their best friends some of them who are on the bus with them and it's almost always just like this has happened to us and this is the story of this person I need you to remember and, and you would hear a lot of people tell you this like I need you to tell their stories not, not the statistics of the fact that they died amongst this group of people but also that each one of them was unique and each one of them had potential and each one of them had aspirations and trying to ferret out those stories um, I think about it sometimes about what drives me to like actually say okay there's this big crisis that's happening here but how can we tell the story that matters? Like, how can we capture the way the Tigrayans now feel about the fact that the Tigray Defense Forces are taking Mekele? And like, they, you know, how do you feel about, are you going to go back home? What, what does it feel like to go back home? And you start listening to some of these stories and, and, you know, you have like people from the older generation, for instance, who told me that, I've had to flee like three times from my home in the span of like 60, 70 years I've lived. Like, I'm not going back. Like, I'm just tired. And then now going back to those same people and being like, okay, you told me this in December. What does it feel like now? And and just being like, of course I want to go back home. Of course I want to go back and breathe the fresh air of Tigray. And I'm excited about going back home. Who wouldn't? So... Yeah, I'm probably just rambling, Jake, but, uh, but yeah. <laughs> no, that's all super interesting, and it sounds like it does inform your reporting in a good way of figuring out how to tell the compelling story and not just, you know, a lot, a lot of conflict reporting is X number of people died in X place described in a very, you know, mechanical way. So it's good that, you know, it's influenced how you go deeper than that. I guess just to return to the chronology I guess take us forward from that UPI fellowship and kind of what happens next and if there are any highlights along the way. Sure. So I was doing that fellowship for the better part of 2012. I was still writing, you know, for the Nation Media Group. And then I, when the fellowship ended in 2013, I still sort of like felt that I didn't want to go back into the newsroom. I wanted to like freelance and sort of like widen the scope of the work that I was doing either across the region and be able to like actually travel widely and extensively across the region. One of the things that I quickly encountered and I realized that as a freelancer, it's, you know, you basically were always short on money <laughs> and by the time publications are able to like commission you to do something it's like it's weeks and you're sort of like trying to knock at so many doors and it was a little bit challenging so what I did is that I established a small media company and what I was doing on the side with that media company is that we would be doing work for the United Nations and you know non-governmental organizations or even private companies in Somalia, in Kenya, across the region. And uh, while doing some of that work or like traveling for some of that work, what I would do is that I would make sure that we plan like, I don't know, like a two days, three days out of that trip and be able to like go into some of these cities and towns and be able to do some of the stories that I actually wanted to do. So in a way, 2013 and 2014, I traveled 
extensively across uh, the East Africa, Horn of Africa region, particularly because there were a lot of these project programs that was coming in. You have to also understand that at the time, there was a lot of opening up in the region, particularly with uh, the United Nations, you know, moving back to Somalia and like some sort of like a semblance of peace taking hold there. And there was a lot of need for um, young people who might be able to travel to some of these places to document some of these projects that governments or private actors or, you know, non-governmental organizations were doing. And my heart was always just drawn to Somalia. So I was doing a lot of the reporting and the traveling around there. And so I did that for the better part of 2013, 2014. What that opportunity also allowed me to do is that at the time I was already starting to think about grad school. I was like, if I want to be the best at what I do, which is journalism and writing and like getting into that field, it was like, I wanted to sort of like go out there and also like improve my own skills, particularly as it relates to narrative writing and narrative reporting and just being able to like get good at that. So, so this gig sort of like also allowed me to like save a bit of money on the side. And in late 2014, I started applying to, you know, grad school, mostly in the UK and in the US. And I got into like several programs, but I... I knew that I, when my Columbia Journalism School application was accepted, I knew that that's where I wanted to go, particularly because I was like, I had been to New York once before that. I had loved the city. I loved the environment. I knew some of the biggest publications and media outlets in the world were headquartered there. I was like, it's going to be a great networking opportunity. And then, of course, I would be able to like quickly go down to DC and reconnect with my editors in UPI and be able to like sort of like also understand the media environment and the media landscape there. So in 2015, mid 2015, I left to go to Columbia. And there I, I was in the journalism school, I did a master's of arts there. And I did a, a my concentration or my specialization was in the politics seminar. So I was in the politics seminar. And uh, it was great. It was nine very intense months in that the program starts in September, it ends in May. And in between, like you're working on also like your big thesis project, like this sort of like eight to 10,000 word journalistic piece uh, or long form piece. It was great in that it, it combined both the theory element of it. So we were studying a lot about like governments and democracy and authoritarianism and looking at how non-state actors perform across the world and looking at examples from just from Africa and Asia and Europe and the United States. And it was also like an interesting period to be in the United States because particularly because the elections, the 2016 elections were picking up at the time. So had a front row seat to the entire U.S. election process as, you know, Donald Trump came into the scene and Hillary Clinton was there and, you know, we would have all these incredible journalists coming into class and to talk about some of those issues. And so around May, I graduated from Columbia and basically a week, I think a couple of weeks before graduation, I had, because we were sort of like applying everywhere and what I was doing while I was in my second semester is like some of the assignments in class that I was doing because we were actually reporting, right? Like you would do reported assignments. So I started pitching some of my work to 
publications and I'll be like, hey, I worked on this story. What do you think about it? Do you want it? I can still continue reporting it. So I started writing a lot to courts. At the time, which is a publication based in New York, it was very digital. I was sort of like it, it married both the seriousness of journalism and also with the fast, quirky nature of social media. I mean, I was reading their newsletters every morning. I, I liked the fact that they were also not just about the politics, but also about like all the cool stuff that is happening in tech and like what's happening with AI in Africa and like what's happening with microfinance. And I was like, you know, from my experience, I had wanted to cover the totality of the region or the totality of like the place where I came from because I was almost always like, we're just not about the wars, right? We're not just about the, the disasters and the conflicts and the famines, which is what draws the, the eye of the world or like the piracy in Somalia. But I'm just like, yeah, there are all these other interesting things that are happening. And, and it, it's at the time, it was like a publication that was sort of like creating this very interesting narrative about a particularly um, the African continent. So I remember I had pitched some stories there and then an editor had reached out back out a few times about like, this is very interesting. You know, we might not want to publish this now or like, oh, we're very interested in this. So a couple of weeks before graduation, the Africa editor actually called me in for an... He's like, do you want to just come over and have a chat? And I was like, oh, absolutely. So I went in and I had a great chat with him, Yinka Adegoke. And then the week after that, I got another call from another one of the editors. And she's like, you know, do you want to just come in and like have another coffee and chat? And we talked about story ideas and Africa and what I wanted to do. And I was like... I love New York, but I definitely want to go back mm-hmm. uh, home. And I definitely want to cover, you know, the continent and particularly the East and the Horn of Africa region. I want to be there for this. And then right after graduation, they called me up and, uh, and they were like, you know what, we'll give you an internship to do this for the year. And I was like, oh, that's great. So, so I started more or less like covering East Africa while I was still in in New York and I spent eight months there up until like December 2016 Mm -hmm. and that's when they offered me the job to they're like do you want to go back to Nairobi and be part of uh, our team that that covers the continent I was like absolutely yes so I came back in December 2016 to Nairobi and then pretty much spent 2017 2018 and uh, half of 2019 covering the region for them and of course that is when a lot of exciting things were happening the political transition in Ethiopia was taking place at the time and you know the protests before that were taking place so it was this phenomena of internet shutdowns and government censoring online was taking root so I, I covered a lot about that there were also like tons of great stories to be done particularly as it relates to like small businesses and how they were growing in the continent and so I would work with like our reporter in, in Lagos or our reporter in Johannesburg and be like, okay, are these things that are happening in your part of your world? So uh, I presume the next step is to join the New York Times. Can you just tell us how that went down? Yes. Yeah, so I was actually at an art gallery in Nairobi when the job ad for this position uh, went out. 
And instantly, like two people who were there, who I knew had immediately showed it to me, even though I had seen it on on, uh, on Twitter, somebody had shared it. So I was just like, oh, this is interesting. And then I remember I left the, the art show that I was at that night and we went out to dinner with some friends. And then I literally just went home and like spent the entire evening pretty much like just working and reworking my CV and, and, and the cover letter that I was going to put together. I knew that I wanted to apply and I and I definitely had thought that this was going to be the natural next step that I take in my career. I had been to the Times office when I was in New York. I had met some editors there. I had expressed my interest of working there like you know working with some of the other journalists and like thesis advisor in New York. So when I applied for the job, that's when I also more or less like you know started working behind the scenes and just being like you know I really applied for this job or like not even behind the scenes but even when I was applying like the people that I put in my reference like I was just like some of the editors or like reporters um, the, the, the the top academics that I knew who might have influence and I was just like hey could I add your name to my references could you write me like a good reference so it was great and then I had also emailed the editors that I had met at the time and I was like, I know this position is opened up. I really want to apply. And so they, you know, were like, okay, fine. You know, we we know of that. Thank you so much. And um, more or less like, you know, got called in for an interview, I think several weeks later, if I remember correctly. And um, yeah, just started like the interviewing process, which took almost like a month and a half, I, I spoke to different editors at different intervals about different things, uh, sometimes about stories, sometimes about what I was interested in, how I envisioned what I wanted to work on, what are some of the things that I would bring to the desk that I thought was either lacking or I could improve. And it was like a, a very intense process of interviewing, but I enjoyed it a lot, particularly because it, it also showed me that that I was at a certain point in my career and there were a lot of things that I had done well, but there were also a lot of things that I, I needed to still do well. And part of the things, the reason why I was very excited about this job is that I was, I was like, I have been working on like this whole thing about writing for global audiences, writing about the full experiences of people living in this region, not just drilling down on like the politics and the coverage of wars and famine, but also sort of like looking at culture and food and languages and books and and looking at how the interplay of different powers, like, you know, um, yes, this region has like a lot of close allies with the West, but also China is now coming in and how does that play out and then what does that mean? So, and and then I was hired, finally offered the job like in mid September and then I it was announced three four weeks later like I think in early October that's when it was announced and I fully joined the New York Times in November 2019 um, that's that's when I started that's yeah. great it's a it's a dream come true right like it's it, it's a dream come true for me I wake up every single morning thinking about this region, the countries in this region, the people in this region, and then being a person who's from this region and just being, how do I tell these stories better? How can we inch forward the coverage about this region and and be able to hold governments accountable, but at the same time, be able to tell 
the nuanced story of like how young people, young entrepreneurs are driving change, whether it's political, whether it's economic, whether it's social, whether it's cultural. There are tons and tons of stories to be done every single day that I think about. And I'm now in this process of just like, let's focus. Let's just be able to tell one story well at a every single time. And it's it's been the one, most wonderful time, honestly, like since November 2019. It's just, it's, it's just been surreal. I, I still sometimes, including right now, pinching myself just to thinking that, you know, that young boy from Mogadishu who admired Al Jazeera Arabic is here and is writing stories that are ending up on the front page of the paper. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And that's kind of a perfect segue because you were talking a bit about some of the stories to to talk about a, a couple of stories. And so those are only two questions. I like to start with asking the question about a story that got away, a, a story that you wanted to do but couldn't because of I don't know, a reporting trip went bad. You couldn't get an editor interested. You couldn't get the key people you needed to to talk to you. Really, whatever. Yeah, there's, there is one story that nags at me. And I, I really, really think about it all the time. And it's when I was at courts, because of the nature of the job, like, you know, you're just interested in entrepreneurs and like, you know, founders and this question of failure and success and funding mm-hmm. and it's something that I every single day like I would just like wake up and like you know start looking for these contacts and just be like are you guys okay are you fine is the business fine <laughs> and I almost became so invested in some of these you know entrepreneurs lives and one person that I really just admired for their work was this Somali entrepreneur he was just like a serial entrepreneur he's was pretty much like around my age like when I met him I was like 28, 29 he was like his name is Mohammed uh, Mahmoud Sheikh just like the most vibrant vivacious energetic inspiring human being you can ever imagine he was just like living in Mogadishu living in constant fear of like terrorism and terror and and all the stuff that was happening out there and I was always almost just like whenever for instance like I knew for instance like the weekend in Mogadishu is like in on Thursday and Friday right so I would like just call him up every Friday morning and be like hey what's up so what's been the big challenge this week so if I tell you a little bit about Mohammed's life, he went back to Somalia um, around 2011, 2012. And that's right after um, the terrorist group Al-Shabaab were kicked out of the capital by these peacekeeping forces. And uh, he immediately went back into the city and was like, the city's safe now. People will definitely need businesses. And like, you know, what can I do? Like, he was just starting to look around quit his job in Dubai where he was living before that he was studying in Malaysia he did a master's in business administration there and like came back to Mogadishu and was just like looking for business opportunities and he establishes this business uh, the laundry business and because what was happening at the time is that all the politicians including the president everybody was taking their suits to be cleaned in Nairobi or Dubai (laughs) and he was like Oh, simple, you know? And so he establishes this business and all of a sudden, like, everybody's like, what do you mean, like, as laundry business in Mogadishu? Like, so he establishes this, the first laundry business in Mogadishu, as, and, you know, and after the Civil War began there. And um, 
you would always get like criticized. People would be like, oh, you know, you're a young man. You have like all this exposure and education and like, are you washing clothes now? Like, you know, <laughs> people would like make all these demeaning comments at him and he would just be like, well, it's a business and it's making money. Mm-hmm. And then right after then is when I sort of like got to know him well. And then he started this flower business. So he became this florist, like right around Valentine's, like I think a year or two later, he was like, Valentine's Day is coming. A lot of young people, like all these restaurants that have been opened, definitely young people will need roses, right? Like, you know, all these mm-hmm. government offices in Mogadishu, UN offices, they all have these plastic sort of like decorative flowers, like in their rooms. Well, they might just need fresh flowers, right? And I later on would like speak with a sister and she was like, we all just looked at each other and we're like, he's definitely crazy. Like this time around, he's definitely gone crazy. <laughs> he was, uh, so he opens this flower business, which makes huge news, right? Like BBC covers it. Everybody covers it. It's like, there's a flower shop in Mogadishu. Mogadishu's first florist, like even the Guardian, like put out a headline like that. And of course he started up like this Google sort of like thing called st- Startup Grind. So like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's sort of like this forum where like you know he would invite all the young local entrepreneurs and like the young people who are graduating from universities with no jobs and he would be like what are you good at tell me about your passions this is how you write a business proposal this is how you think about a SWOT analysis what's the strength of your business what is its weakness what is its opportunities and threats and so he started like you know doing all sorts of stuff and like he also got very much involved with this program that was almost like Somalia's Got Talent you know more or less like would like tell people like can you sing can you come to the stage and do something and like all of a sudden it was like this show that was being shown all over the country and people were like lining up to like you know participate and he was just like the most infectious person like he would come to Nairobi or like and I would chat with him and I was always like you know started this series of conversations where I was just like I'm gonna write a big wonderful piece about you I'm gonna be the person who pieces this person's life together I know so much about you and uh, literally more or less like in 2018 I had last seen him in around I think June of 2018 is when I last saw him and we had this great conversation I remember like we sat down in Nairobi and I just said sat up chatting with him until like 1am at night and um, Mm -hmm. at some point like even got tired of like writing in my notebook I just put it aside because it was so natural it was flowing he kept talking about the hopes for the country and how to rebuild things and you know the question of success and failure like all the young people that who are involved in his business now and how much many jobs he's been able to create in the past seven eight years and like and in August 2018, uh, I was in Nairobi writing another completely different story about Somalia when I was on Twitter and I did see that he was actually shot in Mogadishu uh, and there was somebody who was announcing that Mohammed had been shot and he's dead and like, oh, we just got, like, I remember this tweet, he was just like, oh, we just got back from like the funeral because according to Islamic culture, like you have to bury people quickly. So they in the span of like two, three hours, he was shot and pronounced dead at a hospital and like batted by the time I found out. And I just, wow, it was, it was so surreal. And up until now, like while I'm speaking to you, Jake, it's just like, I'm, I'm almost always just like, and he was always, you know, very invested. He was like, call me anytime, you know, like I'm ready to like give you anything you want. Like he's one of those 
people that you profile whom you're just like, they give you all the quotable quotes and like, you know, led them into your life. And you're like, I need a photo of you from like when you were age five. Can you ask your mother? I please just like, you know, go find it. Like, you know, and he would dutifully like just put aside everything he was doing and go find it. And then all this unfolded and I was just like I really up until now regret that I never wrote that story or like and that he never got to read it and and it stays with me because it will always be like hmm I wonder how you're going to portray me you know he's one of those like people get really invested I'm mm-hmm. like forget about the portrayal okay just like just like talk to me just like this me and it was natural toward the end uh, it, it got very natural because like we had developed years long relationships and so yeah, I think that's one story that I really regret not writing, at least when he was alive. Uh, and I still haven't haven't written it because it's just like, um, I don't know. I don't know what's stopping me, but it's just like, yeah, it's it's something that I, that I still have all the notebooks and all the recordings for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's so awful. That's tragic. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess... Uh, Maybe a memoir piece you can write someday. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, I did write about about his death because two days after the, the, the he was killed, like my editor reached out on that weekend and I was remembered. And I was like, he's like, did you see this? Like this guy, everybody's talking about on Twitter. Like, did you see this? Like, this sounds like an interesting entrepreneur. And then I like just picked the phone and I called him on Sunday and I was like this is what's been happening the past few years. And he's like, well, you know, just put together something. So I wrote like a 800 word piece about his death and what the kind of person it was. But I, you know, that got a huge traction. A lot of people reached out, including his family members. But I still felt that it didn't even capture like 1% of the kind of person that he was and the kind of hope that he had for Somalia. Again, here we are back in Somalia, which continues to tug at my heartstrings all the time. Right, yeah. You know, it's different from a a profile, you know, an obituary. Very much different from the profile you had in mind. Mm -hmm. And then next, if we can talk about a story that you're proud of, it can be from any time in your career, but basically, tell us a little bit about what it was about, um, how you got the idea, how you went about it, start to finish, any reaction, kind of, uh, yeah, the whole story behind the story, if there is one. Yeah, there are a few stories there, but I think I'll pick one story that, I, that, that is still very recent and very fresh. And this is um, the story of, the story I'd like to pick is the story of Paul Rosessa Bagina. He is the character behind the, the movie Hotel Rwanda. Uh-huh. So Paul Rosessa Bagina was a hotelier. He was managing this prominent hotel in Kigali, Rwanda, when the genocide happened there in 1994. And he's credited for, with you know saving the lives of more than 1,200 people, majority of them Tutsis, who were being attacked and, and haunted during the bloodshed that happened in 1994. So mm-hmm. I remember, like, you know, Paul Rosessa Bagina, like, I, I remember watching that film in Mogadishu with my parents, and, like, I remember from a young age when, like, you know, the genocide was unfolding, and we still lived in Kenya, and one of the things that my mother used to do always is to buy the copies of the newspaper every morning so I remember like the Daily Nation and the Standard like would just be like 
you know, we'll talk about like, you know, the war in Somalia, but then we'll always like have like stuff about like Rwanda and what was going on at the time. And so last year, late August, we get the news that Paul Rosasabagina has been arrested in Kigali and that he's facing charges, including terrorism and uh, murder and arson. And um, I instantly knew that this was going to be a very important story for us to cover. And it's a very important story for us to know how this man who became a Belgian citizen and was living in the United States, how he came to Kigali. So, and because at the time he had also, for years at the time, had developed into a critic of the government of of President Paul Kagame. So, yeah, and instantly sort of like wrote that quick story that day and then the next day sort of like followed up with interviews with his daughter and where the last time they had had, you know, their dad was. And it turns out that the last time they heard about him, he had flown from San Antonio, Texas, got on a flight from Chicago again, landed in Dubai, and that's the last they heard of him. And so... I immediately started like talking to people from the Rwandan government and I was just like, is there any chance we could talk to him? We need to understand how this happened, how this unfolded. Could you talk to us? And uh, got on a flight to Kigali without knowing that, you know, whether we were going to be allowed to like go into the room with him or talk to him or even see him. And um, sure. so I went to Kigali and uh, immediately started like saying like, you know, is there any chance we could see him? Is there any chance we could talk to him? And while we were waiting for that, I remember that weekend, what we did is that Paul was being accused of um, creating a group that had undertaken attacks in southern Rwanda, so close to the border with Burundi. So that weekend, we drove across the country, went to some of these villages and, and towns, and, and like spoke to the people in those villages about you know, what had happened and, like, documented their stories and then got back to Kigali um, right on time for the the first time when he was actually going to be arraigned in court. So on September 14th last year, which is actually my birthday, Hmm. I was the first person to get into the courtroom and, like, literally see him sitting there with his lawyer. And he was like oh yeah, like this is the closest anybody has been to him, like at least with the press, since, you know, he has actually been detained. And it was, it was very exhilarating to be there and like just to be able to witness that as a journalist, right? Particularly because the story was already drawing a lot of international attention around how did he get there. A few days before I had gotten to Kigali, President Paul Kagame had spoken on television and, and he had... He talked about like, you know, what was going on and, and I had gotten into like the live television interview and like sort of like asked him the first question. I was like, how did you get him there? How are we sure that he's going to be receiving justice or a fair trial? And so because of the responses that happened that night and when, you know, the president was like, this was a flawless operation. He brought himself here, you know, been working on this for years. There was a lot of international attention around how that happened. So... Mm-hmm. And then a day later, after the trial, which was on a Monday, and I think on a Tuesday, his lawyers at the time, which were government-appointed lawyers that the family later on changed, gave me a call and they're like, you know, you can come and see him and and you can come to the headquarters of the Rwanda Investigation Bureau and you're going to be able to, like, meet with him and talk with him. 
And I didn't believe that that was going to pan out up until, like, you know, we went there and, like, we parked the car and, like, walked across the parking lot. And then we were introduced, you know, brought into this room and he was sitting right there. And it was very interesting because he seemed very calm and he was, like, asked about my name and it was, like, pretty much like a like the hotel manager that he was, was just like, I want to get your name right. Like, I need you to say how it's written and how it's said. And I was like, you know, I just want you to know that, I, w- I just want to know that you're the one doing this out of your own volition and that you're not being coerced to do anything. I was like, no, 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 I want to do this interview. And, and, and yeah, we did get that interview. And, and then, of course, the other great interviews that we, I did was sort of like also getting the other side of the story, which was from the government now talking to like the country's chief spy and the country's justice minister and sort of like asking them questions, had questions about how do you justify this and how do you make sure that uh, is this legal? Are you sure this is not kidnapping? Mm-hmm. Um, how are we sure that he's not going to be tortured, he's going to be receiving fair trial? So that was also like a, a great get you know, as a journalist, particularly when it's that sort of like um, type of a story, like it's more or less like when it's that tricky, sometimes like you're only getting the side of the story from the government or you're getting the side of the story from the the victims or you're getting the side of the story from the people who are being accused of perpetrating this violence. But this was a story where we were sort of like able to see all the dimensions and all the sort of like angles of the story. And of course, like working with my colleagues who are reporting in Belgium and like all across the United States and like trying to dig into what had happened in, in other parts of the world. It sort of like birthed this beautiful narrative that we later on put together around what had happened, who is Paul Rosas Bagina, because the last time everybody heard about him, right, was just like this very famous uh, hero who later on became a dissident. So putting together that story, I think it which is a story that continues to be uh, and because he's on trial and, and he's called the trial very unfair and has like refused to even participate but um, you know the trial is now drawing to a close and there might be a judgment anytime soon in the coming months and it's sort of like drawn a lot of controversy and uh, a lot of condemnation from the European Union from the United States Congress so it's a story that is still alive in many ways but I think is a story that I'm really proud of how we initially were able to be like the authoritative outlet that, that told this and, and, and was like, be able to get into the room with him and ask him, so how did you get here? And is the government right in what's in what they're accusing you of? And how are you, and just being able to like, just sit there and say like, how is your health? How are you doing? And so, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a fascinating story, right? Like, and it's a, brought uh, a lot of international attention and I'm very glad that we continue to be in many ways the leading publication that's sort of like keeping the story alive and, and, and talking about it and writing about it and trying to get the nuances of it all because there's a lot of nuance and tension right that exists particularly when you talk about the genocide and its memory and its history in the context of the uh, of Rwanda today. Yeah, that's a great story and interesting story behind the story. I'll find a link to this story and I'll put up a link and other links to other stories we talked about in the show notes. So listeners should go check that out Thank after you. they listen to this interview. So next, if it's all right with you, we'll move on to the lightning round, which is faster paced questions. You know, you can answer at whatever length you like. It's just 
shorter than, you know, telling the story of your life, which is obviously a bit more involved. So do you feel ready for that? Yes, sure. Let's do it. (laughs) First question, what is a must-read publication that you look at a lot to keep up on your job and your beat? Uh, Two things. I follow, um, consistently read the China-Africa project, which is really important for my work, particularly because it sort of like has just like all the experts, all the detailed analysis that I need on what China is doing in the continent on a day-to-day basis. Other publication that I love is The Continent, which is sort of like this digital publication that is actually more or less like covers all stuff that happens on the continent, it's weekly, it's delivered onto my WhatsApp, and it's a fun, serious publication because it covers everything from food to agriculture to, like, travel to... It's just so fascinating. And, you know, like, you would read articles about 10 things to do if you are in Juba, South Sudan. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. The, you know, things that you would not be seeing on a day-to-day publication. Those are, those are two great publications that I follow with a lot of interest in my job. Very cool. Yeah, I've not heard of those. I'll have to look for them. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun that doesn't relate to your job? Hmm. That's a great one. Over the past year, I have done a lot of podcast listening. I've really tended to podcasts. So one publication, for instance, that I love is Nipe Story. Nipe Story is like Swahili for like, you know, tell me a story. And it's once a week, writers from across the continent, or particularly from Kenya, send a story to the podcast host and he or somebody else actually reads it. And it's just literally like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And it's fun. Like, it's just like a nice way to listen to fictional stories across the continent. And it's like great for running, particularly. Like, I go for like, you know, long (laughs) runs and I'm just like sometimes able to like, just like... 15 minutes it's I haven't even started this run like it's it's so good I I love that um (laughs) I listen to a lot of writers and company which is from CBC radio I mean the conversations there are so good and that weekly conversation with like a writer about their book that just came out or like the the over of like their whole collection that's really really great that's great yeah and then what is the best journalistic article piece or whatever that you have consumed recently I actually thought a lot about this because I read a lot of like long form journalism and I just like had to really dig deep in in terms of like what I loved I think I'm sorry this is from the New York Times (laughs) magazine but it's like this piece by Jasmine Hughes called Learning to Swim Taught Me More Than I Begained For that was published March last year really just spoke to me on so many levels, okay? This is a piece that... Um, so Jasmine is, like, trying to learn how to swim and at the same time is reflecting on her own identity and her own sexuality. And I think it just spoke to me on so many levels because it's just about learning about your own self. It's about 
love and living and finding yourself. It's about knowing yourself and accepting who you are. And at the same time, it's sort of like this has this whole thing about what does it feel to actually perfect something? And what does that teach you? And how does that leave you at the end of the day? And she talks about like, you know, enrolling with this program called The Reluctant Swimmer. And I remember reading that and just thinking, that is who I am. I am the most reluctant swimmer in the world. I grew up in an ocean city for 80 years and I still don't even know how to swim well or swim at all. And that is, you know, I'm just like, and I remember like it, it, it drew all these emotions out of me because I was just like, I remember the first time we moved to Mogadishu and like a month or so later, my uncle who lived near the beach, you couldn't go to the beach all by yourself. Like it was really dangerous because like there would always be this, uh, you know, militias and like they, you know, they were always like watching out for like people who were coming in, like they would rob them and whatnot. So my uncle like employed these guys who would like always protect his house and like they had guns and whatnot. And so he made us go with his staff to the ocean. And I remember I went out swimming with this one of the guys. So like, you know, he, we left some of them in the beach with the, with the guns and everything. And like I went with one of them. And what he kept saying is like he would like help me swim, swim all the way in. And he would be like, can you still see the shore? And I was like, yeah, I can still see the shore. And he would be like, we'll, we'll keep swimming and swimming and swimming. And like he would put me on his shoulders and like when the big waves came, like he would throw me up. And as a nine-year-old, it was the happiest, most joyful moment I had had in weeks living in this city that was just dangerous and like, you know, everybody had a gun and whatnot. And I, reading this piece, I was just like, how is it that I grew up in Mogadishu and I still don't know how to swim? Like, why is it that I'm always afraid of the water? Why is it that I'm always just like, you know, the reluctant, shy swimmer? And I have always been surrounded by friends who are not just swimmers, but great swimmers up until now. Like every single person I know and love in the city is a great swimmer. Um, My younger brothers and sisters, my older brothers and sisters are all wonderful swimmers. And I've just not been able to do this. And so (laughs) this piece like really spoke to me. I I know like it really just was like, it brought so many things out of me. And I just like remember writing to Jasmine and just being like, I am so honored to be your colleague because it's like, this is a piece that I, I have read it like four or five times over the past year because I'm just like, there's so much in here that I think I've still not dug. Um, So... Yeah, that's one piece that spoke to me. <laughs> the Reluctant Swimmer? It's called Learning to Swim Taught Me More Than I Began For. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and, it, and it's about our experiences trying to learn to swim at age 28. Cool. I'll put up a link to it. Let's see. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? One of the greatest journalists that I have really admire and continue to admire is Anthony Shadid. Again, he was a New York Times reporter and before that a Washington Post reporter. He died almost like a decade ago while coming out of Syria. And I read Anthony while still in college or even before college, particularly because 
again, as I told you in the beginning, like because we grew up with Al Jazeera, I was really invested in the Middle East and like the stories coming out of the Middle East. So it was always interesting to compare how Arab television networks or like Arab newspapers and magazines, you know, covered the Middle East in comparison to like how like Western publications were covering. And that's when I sort of like encountered Anthony's work. He just showed a depth of intellectual inquiry, of wisdom, of like being a wonderful observer of like what has happened in the Middle East. And like one of the things I remember that drew me a lot to his work is because I loved Arabic poetry a lot and read so much of like classic Arabic poetry. He would sometimes like take some of those lines and like translate them into the stories to explain like like you know he would be speaking particularly because he covered the Arab Spring he would be speaking to people in Tunisia or Egypt or Libya or Syria and they would say things like they would say that line in Arabic and I would know the line or the poem that you know that person was drawing from but then he would explain it in such beautiful sentences to an English speaking worldwide audience and so for a long time, I was almost always just like, I want to be Anthony Shiti. This is the type of reporting that I want to do. And it's still something that I really aspire to, particularly because Anthony was an American, but his parents and great-grandparents had like moved to Oklahoma in the United States early on. So he was also of Lebanese descent. And I'm always almost just like, you know, as a Somali living in this region, as a Kenyan who understands Swahili, as a Muslim who understands the cultures, the Arab cultures that are in this region, I'm like, how am I deploying my local skills to explain this region to the rest of the world? So it's a challenge that I continue to give myself. And that was truly inspired by Anthony Shadid. So if I had to trade lives with anyone, I would be Anthony Shadid, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I mean, he was a huge journalist. I, I was looking him up just the other day. I think it's because the Pulitzers had come out, and I was, like, looking back through old international reporting Pulitzers, and I think he had won a couple of them. And I, w- I won't say I'm terribly familiar with his work, but then, yeah, I looked him up, and, it, you know, he tragically died in his 40s, and it was just, yeah... It's such an amazing career to have done so much in so short of a time. It's too bad that happened so early in his life. Yes. Yeah, and then his book, he wrote a book about his family's home, House of Stone. And so this was his the abandoned house of his great-grandfather in Marjayun in, in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon, actually. And... Um, he went back there and like rebuilt the house and in that story sort of like telling about you know migration and you know what actually home means and like you know being this town that is caught in like these wars you know and so because I'm also like a, a Kenyan who was born in this country whose parents are from this country but also like grew up in Somalia and it's ethnic Somali and like you know has family and like Ethiopia and like you know, I always consistently think about this question of home and like this question of belonging and, and, and identity and where does my soul rest? Like, you know, because I breathe better in Mogadishu, but I also feel strongly connected to Nairobi and Kenya and but also feel at home wherever I am whether it's in St. Paul uh, or Minnesota, because there's a lot of Somali community there, or bec- or when I'm walking the streets of Djibouti, because, you know, I actually get to talk to people 
in Somali. So this question of, you know, where home is, is something that I really grapple with. And he really captured it that well, very well, by using that home as a symbol in his book. Very interesting. Yeah. Let's see. And then before I ask the final question that I always ask, I mean, if you've listened to other interviews, like I tend to vary up the questions and I've gotten a little bit better about uh, I'll cut some if uh, for time reasons. But if there's anything else you heard that you wanted to respond to, and if not, I'll just move on to the final question. No, I think we can move on to the final question. I'm just going to quickly say that I really enjoyed the interview with Lucia Newman. I find her really fascinating. And uh, I religiously watch Al Jazeera English. It's always playing on the screen over here. And it's like she's one of the most important journalists covering that part of the world, if not the most important person. And I, and I just like how energetic and wonderful she is. And listening to her story on a recent run, I was just like, wow, like it's, it's fascinating. So you're doing, I mean, trust me, like you're really inspiring a lot of people. And, and, and I just wanted to thank you for that. Oh, thanks a lot. That's great to hear. And uh, I'll have to let her know that. I'm sure she'll be delighted to hear that. Uh, that was a great interview. She just, you know, happened to know my colleague here, Anthony, and he put us in touch. And, you know, she was so down to earth and said yes straight away. And, yeah, it was really great to talk to her. Um, she's had a crazy career. But, yeah, thanks for those kind words. And then the last questions I always, the last question I always ask is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? No limitations. Um, one of the things that I really loved doing when I was young is that I really used to dream that I was going to be a runner. I always would like run the fastest, like particularly when I was in grade one, two and three, which is what I did in Kenya. I always used to run fast and I would always just be like, you know, I would run one day. And, and so even though like I, there were years and years that I didn't run, like over the past two, three years that I've now come back seriously to do running, it's one of those things that I always like just keep at the back of my mind and I'm just like running and I'm like, yeah, this is how it used to feel. Like it almost, I remember how I would feel as a seven-year-old competing with all those other students in, in class. Like I, I literally can feel that. There is a point in, in my running now that I just like almost always like... Yeah, I can genuinely feel what I was like as a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> so yeah, I think I would run. And you know, coming from Kenya, it's it's always inspirational to like watch the TV and like watch people like Eliud Kipchoge or others just sort of like pretty much like proving to all of us that limitations don't matter, right? Like you can run, I don't know, a marathon under two hours and and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's great. Do you do any like uh, races for fun or anything like that? Or is it just uh, in your free time? I've done a few races here and there, but I, uh, one of the things that I do is like I run with my younger brother. Usually like I run every day all by myself, but I also occasionally run with my younger brother. He is so dedicated to running and he is so you know, knows the ins and out, what to do, how to train, how to, you know, get your speed going, what, and he just, like, keeps me on my toes, and, and it's, like, would just call me up and be, like, 
I'm running 21k this weekend. Let's go. And I would be like, oh my god, I just wanted to sleep on Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, he's that type of person who like every New Year he runs a marathon. He's like, a, and I'm just like, it's the New Year's Day. It's like, you know, this is when I'm eating cake. Okay, like, and he'll be like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna, I just go back for my marathon run. So in in many ways, like he. He's the person that I, you know, particularly with the pandemic now, and like we weren't able to do like a few races that we had planned to do last year uh, together, um, both in Kenya and outside Kenya. But but it's gonna be it's gonna be, um, you know, it's 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 been great in that sense of like you know just running for the fun of it, um, and and also just sort of like mm-hmm. stay sane, right? Um, given that everybody was sort of like locked down where they were particularly between the months of March and, and August last year in Kenya. It was like, you know, nobody was seeing anybody. You couldn't even leave the capital. You could leave as a journalist you could, to go report out there using your press card, but you couldn't fly out of the country because they closed both domestic and international airlines up until like August. So, yeah, running became the alternative way to fly. <laughs> That's great. And a great way to bond with your brother. Absolutely. Cool. Well, that's the last question. I think this went great. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Abdi. Thank you so much, Jake. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Abdi Latif Dahir, the East Africa correspondent for The New York Times, based in Nairobi, Kenya. I'll post links to some of the things Abdi talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, August 15th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.